Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Tennis is back. We are back. This is the first Monday Match Analysis of 2020, the start of the new season. How exciting is this? We are in a golden age in tennis. I truly believe that. And uh, as always, I'm I'm so thankful to share this golden age in tennis uh, with you guys, with everyone who watches. I appreciate you so much, and uh, I'm really excited for this uh, for this season. And uh, there are big things, very big things, on the horizon. In terms of uh, what we're doing today, top 10, year-end top 10 prediction. When I I get to predict where we're going to be at in about 10 months' time, and it will inevitably be very wrong, very embarrassing, but we do it anyway. We have fun, and uh, I will revisit it, of course, for uh, the last Monday Match Analysis of 2020. And we will see how right I was or how wrong I was, probably the latter. After that, I want to talk about the ATP Cup. Not so much what's happening on the court, more so uh, the ATP Cup and whether or not it's good for tennis. And I'm not going to tell you yes or no. Obviously, there's nuance, there's gray area, but uh, I want to go over some of those uh, those talking points. And uh, it truly is something that's uh, pretty impactful and, and interesting and It has to do with the direction of this sport, so I want to talk about that. And then, it's been a while. Comment response. want to hear from you. I'll use Twitter, YouTube community posts. I have questions, comments, concerns on uh, on both of those platforms, and I think that there's going to be plenty of time for me to uh, go over what you guys had to say. So very excited, and uh, let's get started. The only thing I'll say before we get started is uh, there is there are videos up from the offseason on Federer, Djokovic, Nadal when uh, I preview their 2020 seasons in full. There's also a video up on uh, members of the ATP World Tour rankings 4 through 8. Uh, there will not be a 9 through 16 video just for anyone looking for that. I just wasn't feeling like there was enough demand or uh, or support for that. So I apologize if you were anticipating that video, but uh, it's not going to happen. So let's, uh, let's do this top 10. I don't want to harp too heavily on any of this. I will say, though, there should be less movement this year. It should be a little bit easier. If you look at last season, there were a lot of old guys in the top 10 and a lot of young guys just outside the top 10. If you looked at 
Uh, if you looked at Kevin Anderson, Marin Cilic, John Isner, Del Potro was not as old. Never mind. Don't lump Del Potro into there. But uh, those three especially um, were all in the top 10. And there was kind of a sense that some of the players outside the top 10 who were young, a guy like uh, Tsitsipas especially, it was pretty clear that someone was going to – there was going to be some movement there with some of the older players getting flushed out, some of the younger players in. But now if you look at the top 10, outside the big three, it's pretty young. You have RBA in there, and you have um, – who's number nine? Number nine is also young. You have uh, – I mean old, rather. Um, Gail Monfils, right, in there. So they're kind of old. As you'll see, I don't think they, they stay in the top 10. Um, but other than that, you have a lot of youth in the top 10. So there should be less movement, less newcomers, less volatility. That's uh, something to look out for. So at number 10, I have Andy Murray. Look, he got so much better so fast last season. I mean, the fact that he was able to win the title in Antwerp, beat Stan Wawrinka, who was playing at probably like close to a top 10 level in that at that match in Antwerp. That just tells me Andy Murray's going to get better and better. The talent, it went nowhere. It, it doesn't go away when he has hip resurfacing surgery. He's probably lost a half a step in his movement. But the difference between Andy Murray being a top 10 player and not being a top 10 player was a lot larger than half a step in his movement. Now, winning major titles or being world number one, that's when the half a step might really count really means something. And that's where what he's lost from the hip resurfacing surgery might come into play. But I expect that if Andy Murray plays enough events and he doesn't have a lot of bumps in the road with his health, I, I feel very strongly that he will be in the top 10 or at least around the top 10. Number nine is Grigor Dimitrov, a player who I think uh, just showed some, some really good things, starting to get more confident putting things together, and when he has full confidence, I believe he's a top 10 player with his explosive athleticism, with his variety, and when he's managing his his weakness, which is his serve, which he started to manage pretty well in 2019, and I think his forehand also got a lot better. At number eight, I have Andre Rublev, a player who... I think is simply too good off the ground to not end up in the top 10. A player whose development has been stunted and delayed by injuries, but someone who was really on the same kind of trajectory as your Tsitsipas and your Medvedevs, but really just got derailed by injury. Now I think he's going to make up some ground. And he's someone who I really have my eye on. I think he'll improve. He's got the kind of the kind of elite consistency that you look for. He does not make a lot of errors off the ground, yet uh, he can maintain a pretty high level of aggressiveness while re um, remaining mistakeless, which is really the hallmarks of a strong baseliner, and Rublev has that. Certainly some weaknesses in his game, second serve, defense, but too good off the ground to not be a top 10 player. Number seven, Alexander Zverev. He's shown concerning fragility in the ATP Cup, but let's be let's be honest about something. I mean, 2019 was a turbulent 
uh, up and down year for Zverev mentally. He still had a top eight year. He still wound up in London at the end of the year. So even if Zverev doesn't get any better, and as you can see by me predicting him number seven, I, I still think that he's going to... I don't think he's worked out his kinks, and I think at this point, his mental fragility is part of him, deeply rooted, part of his attributes as a player, and not so much a phase or a slump, a real systematic problem for Zverev. But even with that, he's so talented, he has such a, a good maximum level that Zverev will be a top 10 player. Number six, I have Daniil Medvedev. Now, I understand that this is lower then most people will have Medvedev. And I don't blame anyone who thinks Medvedev is going to be better than number six by year end. Because if he plays the same kind of tennis, the same kind of level that he played over the American hardcourt summer and the beginning stages of the Asian swing, if he plays that kind of tennis, he might be top three. That was unbelievable tennis. And I'm the first person to, to praise and be in awe of the kind of tennis he was playing. My doubts are simply about whether or not Medvedev is going to put together that kind of level on a consistent basis over the course of the entire season. So I'll sit back, I'll wait, I'll see uh, what kind of level we get out of Medvedev. The reality right now is that the sample size for Medvedev is very, very low, and that makes it hard to figure out what the, the mean level is for Medvedev what the average level is for Medvedev. And that's the key, because if you're an elite player, your average level is beating 90, 98%, 99% of the tour. Um, and I'm not certain that Medvedev is as good as what the summer last season would suggest. But we'll have to see. He could easily prove me wrong. Number five, I have Stefanos Tsitsipas, someone who I just think when he puts together the complete package, uh, I really do think he's kind of right there with everyone. He is way more inconsistent than any than any of the three members of the big three. Federer is a little bit less consistent than Nadal and uh, and Djokovic, but Tsitsipas is more volatile and just not quite as stable mentally. But I I really do think he's getting to a point where his highest level is really hard to deal with for everyone. And I expect him to have some tournaments where he is rather uh, almost, I, I mean, I never want to say unbeatable, but I think that there's going to be some times where he's putting together, you know, top five level tennis where he's winning titles, he's making finals. And I, then I think there's going to be some points this year where he is um, losing second, third round. Number four, Roger Federer. I expect Federer to have a really good year, and I expect him to have a chance to win big titles, but I drop him down to number four because I think Dominic Thiem is going to win a major, and I think Dominic Thiem plays a lot more events than Roger Federer, and I think Dominic Thiem is going to collect way more points over the clay court season than Federer. And I, I just see this as a, as a math issue uh, for Federer. And I think team will overtake him. Now, do I think that Federer is more likely to win? You know, I mean, he's he's just as likely to win a major as team, maybe. I might say that. Uh, he's He's right up there. 
but team plays so many more events. I think team now enters the realm of of um of contendership now at every single tournament he plays outside of uh, Wimbledon, where I still maybe have doubts about how well he'll compete at Wimbledon. But uh, if his returning, if his first serve return gets better, then we can even start talking about Wimbledon. I mean, I really do think that team has has reached the point where every tournament he's a part of, he can win. And that's why I have him up to number three. At number two, I have Novak Djokovic. It's hard between him and Nadal, uh, but I just... I don't see Nadal getting um, getting any worse right now, um, and Nadal has that safety net where he's the a massive favorite at the French Open, and Djokovic just doesn't have that tournament. The counter argument is that Djokovic has more tournaments than Nadal, where where he, maybe he's the favorite at. He might, if you look at last year and you talk about favorites from an odds perspective. Djokovic has three tournaments he's the favorite in, and Nadal has one. Majors, I should say, not tournaments. Um, so you could flip that around. But I think that come Wimbledon and U.S. Open, I think that some other players are going to be involved. And I don't think we're looking at those as just big three events. Wimbledon less so, because I'm not sure who's comfortable on the grass at this point. And Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer are so comfortable on the grass. So Wimbledon, maybe, I think, if someone's comfortable on the grass, if it's Tsitsipas or Medvedev um, or team are comfortable on the grass, I see them competing. U.S. Open, I, I see that going to a younger player this year. I, I do. So that's why I, I'm not compelled to put Djokovic over Nadal in the, uh, the year-end top 10. Although, you know, it's something for me that um, I'm... I don't feel very strongly about that. I don't feel very strongly about Djokovic or Nadal at number one. I could see it going both ways. All right, ATP Cup. Um, I want to talk about it. There's there's a little sneak peek if you're watching on YouTube. But uh, the what I want to talk about is if the ATP Cup is unfair. Before I delve into that question, a couple things are true. The ATP Cup is 10 times more exciting than um, the normal ATP 250s that are normally happening at this time in Sydney, Perth, and Brisbane. It brings more excitement to tennis. It brings more money to tennis as a result. From a fan's perspective, this is better. The ATP Cup is better. Now, that is only the case because you have top players playing at this event. And the only reason top players are playing at this event is because the ATP Cup is offering a substantial amount of prize money and a substantial amount of rankings points. 16 out of the top 20 players in the world are playing at the ATP Cup. It is a total success when it comes to entertainment value. This is exactly what the ATP wanted. I'm sure Tennis Australia is, is making a lot of money. The ATP is making a lot of money. And uh, a lot of people are very, very happy. Team Tennis 
is trendy right now. Team tennis is getting people going, getting people excited. Laver Cup, a revamped Davis Cup, now the ATP Cup. There are more team events than ever before. And they're great. They are exciting. They produce a lot of really good content. But it's hard to work these team events into the construct of the ATP Tour. And Davis Cup had an issue where not enough top players were playing. And Davis Cup wasn't making any money. And Davis Cup wasn't drawing eyes and wasn't getting excitement because they couldn't get the top players playing. The solution is ATP Cup when we're going to offer rankings points and prize money. But here's the problem. Qualification for the ATP Cup is based on a country's top-ranked singles player. More or less, you have one wildcard team. That's Australia. One wildcard team. Other than that, you have the top 24 singles players. They all have a chance, unless they don't want to play, they all have a chance to qualify their country in the ATP Cup. So, Russia. Daniil Medvedev at number five means that Russia qualifies for the ATP Cup. Now, the second-ranked singles player is the second-ranked player for the country. Then you get to choose a third player who, uh, actually up to five players, but but those players will mostly be used for doubles and may not be used at all. And of course, if you are someone who is a highly ranked player, you need to be preparing for the Australian Open. And by the way, you don't get points or money unless you're playing matches. And doubles points are useless. So for the most part, two players from each country are, are really benefiting from the ATP Cup in, in a way that a top player will want to benefit. So take a look at this. Russia has a trio of incredibly talented players, Daniil Medvedev, Karen Hachinov, Andrei Rublev. Hachinov is ranked 17th. Rublev is ranked 23rd. Andrei Rublev cannot play or chooses not to play the ATP Cup because he shouldn't play the ATP Cup. Because he doesn't really fit into the construct. And he needs to prepare for the Australian Open. So he's playing at Doha instead. A tournament with less rankings points and less prize money available. Now, you look at a country like Bulgaria, who qualifies for the ATP Cup due to Grigor Dimitrov. Well, their second highest rated player is world number 417, Dimitar Kuzmanov, or Dimitar. Now, Kuzmanov has never won a match on the ATP level. He's had some success at the ITF level. He's had some success on the challenger level. He has never quite made it into the top 200 where you need to be to attempt to start qualifying for ATP events. But because of the ATP Cup, Kuzmanov has won two tour-level matches. He will receive nearly half of the prize money 
that he has ever had in his entire career just from these two matches. He will receive 30 rankings points, which actually isn't isn't all, all that many um, because uh, players outside the top 300 don't qualify to receive as many rankings points as uh, the, the top 300 players at the ATP Cup, uh, which is so that they don't just totally leap up when they don't really deserve it. But if you can catch my drift here, Andre Rublev is the odd man out, and Dimitar Kuzmanov gets to play an event, gets to qualify for an event that Andre Rublev doesn't exactly qualify for. And it has nothing to do with Kuzmanov or Rublev. It has to do with Medvedev and Dimitrov. So a country's top player is dictating who are the players who are lower ranked who are playing this event. And this event is a really great thing to be a part of. So you have lottery winners from countries like Bulgaria with a strong top player, but not much else. You have these lottery winners kind of sprinkled in the lower ranks of the ATP. And then you have players like Joe Wilfred Sanga or Riley Opelka or Andre Rublev who can't play the ATP Cup because they're from USA or France or Russia. And it's not fair to those players. The second problem is, of course, this is a team event with on-court coaching. How are you putting this in the same ranking system as other events? It's, it's not the same conditions. Plus, the ATP Cup is an added, it, it counts as an extra event, um, a 19th event. So, you know, it, it adds to the maximum level of points that a player can win in a season. Um, but, so so essentially, it's it's a bonus, they're bonus points is how you can think about it. You, you don't really defend points at the ATP Cup, you only win points at the ATP Cup. So, it is a really good thing for those who can be a part of it. Uh, this is the breakdown, by the way. So the maximum number of rankings points you can win is 750. So like there's a chance that a Novak Djokovic, for example, if Serbia goes all the way, can can get uh, 750 rankings points, which is a, it's an unreal amount of points. The prize money, also pretty substantial. In the group stage, if you win a match, you get $40,000. That's the kind of payout that you get for qualifying for, for a major. So um, the prize money is, is really, really good. And so are the rankings points. It's hard because if you don't have these incentives, you don't attract the best players. But when you put in these incentives, it, 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 it makes the playing field uneven. The only ideal scenario for me, this is how I'll leave it. You need, if you want more team events, you need two separate tours. And you need to find a way to make team events uh, non-geopolitical. So you need a way to make team events that don't have to do with representing countries because that will get stale. It will simply get stale. You need another way like world team tennis. You need free agency. You need governing bodies. Uh, you need... If you want more team events, you take away all the 250s on tour and you completely reconstruct the ATP 
and you make more team events. But then team events are a separate tour. Individual events are, another, you know, the other tour. You have to separate them. If they are mingling, you are going to have unfairness. Like you do at the ATP Cup. So, um, that's the deal. I don't know how you feel about it. I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm in the middle. I'm not outraged that the ATP Cup exists because I think it's exciting and I think it's good for a lot of people and I think the fans win. I like team events, but it's totally unfair. And I don't see how you could argue that it is fair. I don't, I don't see that as a possible conclusion here. So the question, what's more valued, the tennis economy or fairness? And that's what that's the kind of question that um, needs to be answered. Okay, let's go to the comments. I will first go to Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Gil Gross. Um, and I will go through these replies. I sent out a tweet asking for uh, for some questions. Okay. Um, is 2020 the year that can settle the GOAT debate once and for all? I'm just going to say no. Which players do you think have the biggest chance of disappointment in 2020? It appears from the early stages, I'm kind of cheating because this is supposed to be a season preview. It appears the biggest chances of disappointment are Zverev and uh, possibly Felix Ojealiasim, who have all had bad starts to the season. Um, I think that Monfils at 33 years of age could drop off, especially because I think he worked really hard last year and didn't really get the results that he was looking for because of injury. Um, I think that Kane Shikori is, is starting to drop off. Um, but you know, it's, it's pretty hard to say. I mean, that's pretty tough. A lot of the time, the player, the players who will disappoint are the players who will get injured, and and that's just kind of how it is. In terms of top players, I mean, again, I I feel like there's a lot of expectation on Medvedev, and I don't know if he can can play the kind of tennis that he played over the summer. So, but at the same time, I don't envision him dropping out of the top ten or anything that drastic. Do you think this will be the year a next gen player wins a Grand Slam? Who do you think has the best chance to win one at which slam? I personally think Medvedev has the best chance to win with Tsitsipas in a close second. I, um, again, I don't blame anyone who thinks Medvedev has an upper hand on Tsitsipas because Medvedev's highest level is, high, is a higher level than Tsitsipas has ever played. Um, and we're assuming here we, we are not considering Team Next Gen because he's not, by the way. Some people like to lump him in there, but he's just not that young. Um, I would say it is Tsitsipas at the U.S. Open. Thoughts on Zverev's shocking week? Everyone thought the exhibition tour with Roger would really help. Well, it did help. It helped. It, it put a Band-Aid on it, but the demons came back. Uh, but he looks more mentally fragile than ever. Yeah, this is a really difficult situation. Uh, the easy answer is, the easiest thing for me to say is that he needs completely new people around him. But when you're talking about family being involved, it's really, really hard. And, you know, it's hard to say, it's hard for Zverev to just overhaul his entire team 
um, when one one of the members of his team is his father. That's really hard. But what Laver Cup showed is that if Zverev has the right person in his corner to build him up and to make him feel confident and someone who he respects, then uh, someone who's able to manipulate him mentally can have success with him. That's what Laver Cup kind of showed everyone. So clearly his team is not accomplishing that. Will we see a new Grand Slam winner? Who will it be? In my opinion, team has the best chance. And I think he wins one. Um, please talk about the WTA. I want to see something about that. Yeah, so, so I'll answer this question. It's a time thing. The amount of time that it takes to be an expert on the ATP is a substantial amount of time that I try to spend. And it's really hard. And when you follow another tour, you double that time. So when I watch women's tennis, I watch it for leisure, but I don't feel pressured. Oh, it's a big match. I can't miss it. I can't do anything else because I, I need to watch it. Now, that's how I am with ATP matches because I have this responsibility that I enjoy and I take seriously. Um, so it's just a time thing. If I do YouTube full time, I do think I will uh, eventually incorporate that. Is this Chapo's year, and should we be worried about FAA? Okay, someone, uh, someone with a lot of, um, um, what's it called? Someone who wants to know about the Canadians. Shapovalov has a good trajectory. He's up to a career high number fourteen. Is this his year? I don't know. I mean, it depends. So, what's going to make it his year? Because I, I still think that there is there's a certain requirement that you need to be elite and that is not making a lot of errors and Shapovalov still makes a lot of errors and I just don't see it as optional in terms of getting to the top of the sport. I don't think that making a lot of unforced errors is is something that can be overcome. I think that with all of the the big hitting and the beautiful ability to change direction and come up with great shots and have big power off both wings. And uh, I, I really think his first serve got a lot better. That's why he's in the top 20 now is because he's serving better. That's why he's not still stuck in the 30s. But, you know, there, there are still legitimate issues with Shapovalov's game. And if you're able to put enough pressure on him, as top players can, you still get errors. If you say, is Shapovalov's year making the top 10, I think it's very possible that he makes the top 10. Does he get to the elite levels? I don't think so. Should we be worried about FAA? Yeah, probably. Probably. Uh, not yet, maybe. But uh, he's got to start figuring out his serve. I mean, again, it's uh, he's got to figure it out, plain and simple. Will Zverev ever get back to this list he was on for so many years? Uh, players who have no one ranked higher than them that are younger. Probably, I mean, again, Zverev has deeply rooted problems. The mental issues, they are not a phase. They are not a little blip in the radar. They are, they are something that we can expect to be a part of Sasha Zverev. 
Okay, now to YouTube community posts. Do you think Hurtkoch can be a huge threat this season? Um, he has been secretly rising up the rankings last year. He was. It was very secret. He didn't tell anyone. Uh, please give me your thoughts on his game and what he can improve this year to trouble some of the big names. Hurkacz is someone, nothing jumps out, but there's no weaknesses there. Uh, he, he reminds me of Tomas Burdich because he's good off both wings. He's a little bit quicker. He's got a little bit less power. He's got good size. Um, he, he's just very solid overall. So, yeah, I mean, Hurkacz is someone that everyone's sleeping on him, uh, that everyone's sleeping on because he doesn't have a massive weapon. But Hurkacz is going to be in the top 20 by the end of the year. Which slam do you think has the best chance of a non-big three-member winning? I think Wimbledon. No, I do not agree. I don't think Roger can give another monster performance, and we all know Rafa. No, I think I think Nadal is really good at Wimbledon now. I think the last two years have shown that. Um, he almost beat Djokovic, you know, two years ago. He was right there. He had match point. In really impressive win against Del Potro in the quarters that year, and... Uh, I think that he's playing really well on the grass. Federer, you're right. Maybe he won't reach that level again. Djokovic is still there. But the problem is, I mean, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, they haven't had any good results on grass. And I, I just question how comfortable they are on the surface, honestly. I think only peak Federer or Djokovic can defeat Rafa at um, Australian Open. It is the first time that Nadal will compete at Australian Open with a lot of accumulated confidence. Um, yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't see Nadal getting upset by anyone. Djokovic added Ivanisevic. Nadal added Moya. Do you think Federer needs to add another member in his team for fresh ideas like the other two did? Nothing tells me right now that Federer is getting stale. I think, uh, I think he's doing the right things on the court playing how he needs to play. Again, I think Federer, for Federer, it's all about his movement. I mean, I don't really think tactics or nerves are, are coming too much into play like they were for a while. I think right now he's in a good place, and it's just about how well he's moving. I think Sinner is one of a kind. I agree. I don't have time to read this, but um, I don't think there's a question in here. But yeah, I think Sinner is very one of a kind. I think his backhand is generational. Generational. I don't know if I've seen anything like it since Agassi. Prediction for... With the power, by the way, because Djokovic's backhand is also generational. But when I say his backhand, I think the power on his backhand is generational. Prediction for Grand Slam. I know Safin had a big backhand, too. Slam count for the big three at the end of 2020. Um, not going to do that. Let's see. Any, any other ones? Um, I want to end the... Um, I want to end this, and, and there are other comments here, but um, I want to end this by giving a shout-out to some of the players who I think can be dark horses in 2020. Why not? Um, we will start with um, Jan Leonard Struff. I think uh, at 29 years of age, he's getting really comfortable playing his game, hitting huge off both wings, going for broke on every shot, and... Uh, I think he can do some good things. Um, watch out for Hercotch. Watch out for Opelka. But that's not breaking any ground. They're both 22. Um, a shout out to Casper Rude, 
who has a really good forehand and is a really good athlete, should serve him really well on clay. Um, a shout-out to Miumir Kecmanovic, who to me is, is very impressive off the ground. Really good timing, really good racket talent, and uh, also a good serve. A shout-out to um, Nishioka, who's getting better and better, who moves really well, really quick, really consistent. Um, a shout-out, of course, to Sinner, I think, Will. Uh, I think he has a chance to be top 20 by the end of the year. A shout-out to Alejandro Davidovich, um, sorry, Davidovich Fokina, who was a player who really caught my eye in the next-gen finals for his incredible combination for for his incredible power off the ground uh which is really up there with you know you i, I almost want to say like at a almost basilishvili level but he's so much more mobile than basilishvili as an athlete all right that is it that is our uh season preview monday match analysis next monday back to normal it's very exciting analyzing atp matches the bread and butter I can't wait. So I will see you then. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.